Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Welcome to episode 133 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Mark McEvely and I, Matt Jessup, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. My guest host this week is our Director of Research and Trading, the one and only Nick Whitaker. Good to be here again. Thanks, buddy. I'm looking forward to this one. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's going to be a good one. We I saw some, some of your content. Stuff, it's going to get me jacked up here. Oh, yeah. So I'll turn it over to you, Nick, if you want to do uh, the pricing and news for the week. Yeah. So before we begin, we always walk through some numbers um, on, on indexes and how the market's performing. So this data is all coming from Coifin. Uh, so the S&P 500 index for the year, we're down 3.97%. The Dow Jones, we're down 2.67%. The NASDAQ Composite Index, we're down 7.27%. The IWM ETF, that tracks the Russell 2000, we're down 6.57% on the year. The Vanguard International ETF, X the US, is down 0.29% for the year. Our three-month T-bill yield is sitting at 0178 our two-year Treasury yield is sitting at 1.031, and the 10-year Treasury yield is sitting at 1.867. So we've had some movement here. So you look at how bad the NASDAQ and small caps are year-to-date, and then, Nick, look at that yield on a 10-year. Yeah. Wow. The yields have really shot up this month um, pretty drastically. Yeah. It's going so. to be interesting. I mean, the market's obviously reacting to those rising yields right now. Which yes. I know we're probably going to talk about here. Yes, absolutely. Yep. So let's talk about big headlines and current events. You want to kick it off, Nick? Yeah, so I have two quick ones for, for our listeners today. Um, a lot of talk about oil prices, so I wanted to, to touch on that. Um, you know, Brent crude is trading uh, above $85 following reports of the Houthi uh, militants that attacked a, a UAE oil facility on Monday. Um, and then following that, a declaration from the UAE that uh, that they will retaliate for the attack. So anytime something like that happens, uh, the price of oil naturally shoots up um, because of uh, inventories that are affected. Yeah. Um, but but it's important to know and and, and a top headline because oil is at its highest level uh, since 2014. So 85, and we've not seen this for for a pretty long time. So there's a lot of buzz around it. Um, you know, this is a, from an article on Wall Street Journal. I'm sure, you know, it's been covered on all the major news outlets. But uh, one thing I just wanted to, to quickly run through for, for listeners is, you know, what's driving the, the rally? You know, it's not just this one moment of, of the Houthi militants and, and the attack. That's part of it. You know, we also have these tensions with the Russian and Ukraine standoff and everything going there. And then another thing that, that's probably less talked about is that uh, the, the impact of, of Omicron has not impacted Omicron has not impacted the demand 
as much as the oil industry had expected. Sure. People expected um, similar effects like the Delta wave. Exactly. And so stockpiles have fallen below recent norms, um, which is also driving driving the price. So that's that's one of the big headlines, oil above 85. So we'll see where it goes from here. Nick, I've also seen some traders on social media try to draw the, and connect the dots in the form that if this Omicron phase really helps get the population herd immunity from the virus, that the summer drive-in season, season coming up could be disproportionately larger mm-hmm. and that people are starting to speculate and drive up the futures curve that demand this summer is going to be that much more. Yep. And the price is already starting to, in essence, start to price that in. Yep. That demand for the from the summer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there could absolutely. be some truth to it. We'll yeah, see. We'll see. Oil is always uh, an, an interesting market, so uh, could be quite volatile. It all all it takes is is one event to change it. So. That's right. And obviously, there's some geopolitical tension around the around the world, like you were suggesting. I mean, oh yeah. So you know, definitely has a recipe for further supply disruptions, right? Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, you know, anyone, anyone banking on it, dropping back down to 40 anytime soon. I don't, I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know about that either. You know, the uh, thing that's interesting is, you know, with all of this big push for this ESG investing, mm-hmm. you know, it's hard to get your arms around oil stocks with all, with that big kind of push by wall street too. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, I could go on and on about, about that. Uh, yeah. With your, having, having, with your background, having worked in, in the space and, and dealt with that, but that's something that, Areas of the market, things that I'm most intrigued about, just from a personal life perspective, what does life look like in 15, 20 years? That is the area, the oil markets and 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 sustainable energy that intrigues me the most. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll see. So one other uh, big headline for you guys, um, and this was covered on a number of, of outlets as well. I saw it on Wall Street Journal. I grabbed this article from Bloomberg. Um, and it's about tougher merger rule, uh, merger rules and, you know, whether or not these tougher merger rules are coming. Um, so U S antitrust enforcers announced an effort to toughen merger rules saying a new framework is needed to combat a surge in deals that threatens to worsen already high concentrations across the industries. So in a nutshell, the DOJ antitrust division is working with the Federal Trade Commission, and right now they're currently seeking public comment. So that basically just means that you know we're in the very beginning stages. They're mm-hmm. reaching out, receiving uh, recommendations, and, and basically just reaching out to sources across the industry to get ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's relevant, particularly in, in light of the, the recent uh, Microsoft news yesterday, uh, buying Activision. Um, so... You know, we'll see what happens. It's still the very beginning stages, but um, you know, I'll, I'll read a, a line here from one of these articles. One of these articles. It's Jonathan Cantor, and he's the head of the antitrust division. And in his statement, he says, "We need to understand why so many industries have too few competitors, and to think carefully about how to ensure our merger enforcement tools are fit for purpose in the modern economy." So that's a pretty good line. Um, it's going to be very important to see how this kind of shakes down and it's definitely a top headline. So that's, that's my last current, uh, current event. What do you think about that? One? Yeah. So, I mean, as I'm digesting that, what's kind of going through my mind is there seems to be this political push by the Biden administration, um, due to their policies, partly causing the inflation trend that we're seeing. 
And now they're making comments that they try to want to control prices in certain areas, right? Mm -hmm. And I think this is along that kind of political framework. And I'm coming at this from an economic standpoint. You and I both know with a capitalistic society, the last thing you want is the government dictating prices, right? Absolutely. You don't want the government dictating what gasoline should be or what food products should be. It's the last thing you want. With this specifically, this seems to be kind of on that same wavelength. And ultimately, I'm a fan of letting capitalism work its way through. And what you've especially seen over the last decade is there's multiple industries that have been disrupted by capitalism. Mm -hmm. So let's think of Amazon as an example. We could go back a couple of decades and... Um, they were an online bookstore during the dot-com bubble. And it's funny because last night when I was uh, on the ride home, CNBC was on and they're trying to provide an analogy to where Amazon's stock performance and where the company was at in 2000 and where Amazon's at today and why it's selling off year to date. And I was literally laughing out loud in the car. <laughs> but what I'm getting at is think of the disruptions, Nick, that Amazon has created in so many industries. Okay, and you're telling me that if the government was dictating price on things, that that innovation would have happened. Yeah, no, absolutely not. It wouldn't have. No. And so, you know, what I'm trying to get at is I'm a fan of letting the market work its way out, because just like in the oil markets, what is the cure for high prices in the oil market? High prices. And then all of a sudden people start drilling more and then they, they have a supply glut. So yep. what is the cure for high prices in a capitalistic society? Other people investing money and competing against it. Mm -hmm. You know, let's look at cars. You know, electric cars a couple of decades ago wasn't even seen at where it's at today. So the competition that all these electric car providers, not just Tesla, but a lot of new entry points, that has made what? Ford, GM, and et cetera step up their game. Mm -hmm. Competition. They've had Capitalism. And so I'm a fan of letting these industries really work themselves out because if you're charging too high of a price, someone's going to undercut you. And so you let the environment dictate that price. Mm -hmm. That's Jenna. That's my, that's my rant for the day. <laughs> I probably have another in a little bit. I knew that one would get you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, you know, I'm, I'm in total agreement with you there. It's, it's interesting. We'll see what happens. And it's very beginning stages. So no one needs to, to, you know, listeners don't need to worry about this too much. Well, um, I know you're a guest in February. So I want to see if you can come back and say if you have any, I bet it's too soon. Yeah, it will probably be, I mean, knowing how slow, slow the works turn on this, it will probably be too soon. But definitely if it's in the headlines, we'll, uh, we'll cover it. Well, real um, quick on that CNBC comment I had, it was great because this snippet, this, this guy is sitting there talking about um, you know, how all these tech companies sold off in the early 2000s and using the Amazon example, which is not a recommendation for or against the name officially. Nick, what the insinuation was is even Amazon sold off over 90%, uh, you know, during the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. And that's like trying to compare a freshman in college with where their career is at when they're 45. You yeah. can't do it. <laughs> okay, I'm, 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 I'll, I'll, let's, let's, let's move on to tweets, articles, it's and like, research from the week. It's like comparing Michael Jordan in high school and 
Yeah. Post six rings. <laughs> exactly. You can't do that. Tom Brady when he's in when he's in high school to where he's at now. I mean, you can't do that. Yeah. Okay. All right. Mo- moving on to, to tweets and articles and research, and uh, I'm going to pass it over to you. What do you got for me? Okay. So the first thing I got is a research note from Top Down Charts, their weekly note on January 16th. The title of this specific section of the note, Nick, is Pandemic Pressures. Okay. So what this piece had from Mr. Thomas is so far, approximately 20 companies within the S&P 500 um, have reported fourth quarter earnings. Okay. And it's saying how many times during their earnings calls, they've said certain key terms. Okay. So it's early in the earnings reporting season, as you know, but for the 20 companies that have reported so far, 12 have cited labor cost and shortages during the earnings call. Mm-hmm. 10 have cited COVID cost and their impact on them. 10 have mentioned the supply chain disruptions. Nine, transport and freight cost. And eight, raw material and commodity cost. Those were the, the heavy hitters. Mm-hmm. So I think this is a trend you're going to see during these earnings calls of companies having to really talk about these key things that our investors are looking for. How is COVID impacting your bottom line? Is it in the form of you having to pay more for your labor? Is it have to do with the uh, uh, PPP or the, per- the personal protection gear that your, mm-hmm. you know, your people have to wear? Is it, is it your suppliers are, are, are still messed up? It's mm-hmm. curious to kind of see how I think this is gonna evolve over the rest of earnings season. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be companies that navigate this better than others. Absolutely. You know? And so I think the market's going to be rewarding those companies that are more, let's just say, proactive in the past with their logistics. Yeah, absolutely. And more proactive, maybe with a positive company culture where they're not competing just on price or how much they're paying an employee. Right. You know, it's going to be interesting because I think you're going to start to see those differences. Okay. So I wanted to throw that out there to give our listeners and viewers a little bit of a preview of what they're probably going to start to see next week and the week after. Yeah, I'd be interested. In FactSet, does this this uh, data is coming from FactSet, um, and they do a great job of of this kind of charting and and whatnot. And I've seen this stuff many a times and i'd be interested to see this chart on a historical basis where they could stack quarters next to each other with the same oh, that, awesome. that would be a good view because you know i bet it looks pretty similar for the past two three earnings periods yeah just kind of a spike probably, in those terms probably the the covid costs and impacts has moved down one but i bet that was a little higher but you know we've been hearing a lot about labor shortages and, and labor costs a lot about supply chain a lot about freight and shipping, um, a lot about the raw materials in the tech space and, and whatnot. So, you know, this is going to continue. This chart will continue to grow as the earnings season progresses. And it wouldn't shock me if you see this chart reappear in, in the first quarter and the second quarter and the third quarter earnings. So it's interesting that you, you kind of mentioned that because what comes to mind is a good segue to my next uh, piece of research. But before I discuss it, it really has to do with where we stand in supply chain disruption and its correlation to inflation, okay? And I'm of the personal opinion, and I want you to give your own, that supply disruptions is the chicken before the egg, i.e. inflation, okay? 
And I think you really got to focus on working on the supply chains. And that's going to be one of the key things that helps bring down inflation. And the subsection of the supply chain disruption, one of those is definitely labor, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so um, I'm going to talk about that here for a second. But do you have any comments about what I just said? Do you disagree or agree with that? No, I agree with that. You know, and, and for your listeners, I know we've talked about it multiple times for the past few months, but, you know, COVID was such a shock to the global supply system, our entire way of going about life. And there's, there's all types of inventory charts and all types of data that you can look at that if you look at like a linear progression of pick a data point and then look at the impact of COVID, you know, when inventories have to, to jump up and then come back down. I mean, any any industry, regardless of what you're talking about, had to really be flexible and move and change. And we're still working through that. So that's the chicken. And, and yeah, because, as well. you know, the, the market pre-COVID was just in time delivery. You know, these manufacturers, let's just pick on the auto industry as an example. Yeah, that's a great one. You know, the, the, they, they don't stock up on inventory. Okay. Yeah. But when you have a car and you have thousands of parts that go into that car, what happens, Nick, when one of those parts is out of supply? You shut everything down. And I think this is a hard lesson for companies to learn that they are really digging down on their suppliers. And I think you're going to start to see negotiations or things written into these contracts that say, all right, if you're going to be signed up for just-in-time delivery, if you don't deliver within this certain time period, Nick, these are these penalties. And I think they're about to be, become yeah. very substantial. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and for listeners who are wondering, okay, well, why don't they just have more inventory on hand just in case? Why aren't they just, why weren't they ahead of this? And it gets down to capitalist pressures. That's right. And their investors saying, why do you have so much stuff sitting in a warehouse? You're paying so much money to just You're have storing this stuff it. sitting around. You, all, you got that, that, that cash tied up in that product you're not selling. Exactly. And that's where the evolution of this just-in-time delivery system has come up. And that's why you have, I think, certain companies that are wanting to control now their own delivery system. Yep. You know, whether you can't that's blame their, them. yeah, whether that's their own trucking system, whether that's own their own de delivery one way or another. Mm -hmm. You know, you're going to see more people try to bring that stuff in house and control it. Yeah, right. Absolutely. All right. Well, this is along that same segue. This is an important piece. So, listeners, this is a piece of research from Brad McMillan. For those of you that don't know Brad's name. Um, he's a staple for the Independent Advisors podcast. He is uh, the director of, uh, he's a chief investment officer for Commonwealth Financial Network. Uh, Commonwealth is the largest private broker dealer in the U.S. Brad has extensive experience um, in kind of his work, especially being an economist. And so he has a blog, okay? And the blog post from January 17th, so just two days ago, Nick, is titled, Is There a Risk of a Supply Gut in 2022? Okay. Now, the pendulum in the whole conversation of supply chains is really moved to major supply chain issues. We talked about that just a couple minutes ago. This is one of the first pieces I've seen that actually talks about what could happen when things begin to normalize. And you could really see this pendulum swing really far, really quick. 
But when you're in these types of environments, Nick, it's hard to see that. All you see is supply disruptions. Oh, this is going to last for a very, very long time. But once that starts to change, it could move really quick. So follow me with what Brad says. And then I'm going to read. It's going to take me about 90 seconds. And I want your, I'll let you respond first. Okay. And this is all quotes, listeners. I'm going to uh, read from exactly what Brad said. With expectation of massive pent-up consumer demand, manufacturers and retailers alike are building up inventories. While companies do not want to be caught off guard as they were this last year, overproducing and overordering are real risks. Exacerbating the problem or concerns that actual customer spending will not match up with expectations to spend. A mismatch would leave a glut of inventories in warehouses and shop floors. Equally important is the possibility of a more rapid return to post-pandemic normalcy. If that happens, we may see a shift in consumer preferences from goods to experiences. During the past year, spending on goods rebounded to well above pre-pandemic trends. But spending on services is yet fully recover. When spending on experiences and services rise, it could replace consumer demand for goods. Last paragraph, he titles this closer to the end than the beginning. The current supply chain crisis means it will take many months for inventory levels of manufacturers, wholesalers, and retailers to get back to a comfortable percentage of sales. A telltale sign of supply glut and forthcoming sales crash is a rapid rise in inventories in relation to sales. An inventory glut could lead to lower market prices and potential losses for businesses. In the near term, inventory buildup should continue to support the businesses and equity values of goods and material producers. Still, unless demand function shifts materially higher, we might be closer to the end than the beginning of the supply cycle. In other words, stocks of goods and material producers may have downshifted from third to second gear. A further downshift may be forthcoming. I'll let you re uh, respond first. Yeah, no, I, I love how he put it. Love what he said. Um, I agree. And more than anything, I love the chart because that's exactly what we were just talking about. Um, where you can see and kind of understand, okay, this chart... <laughs> For listeners, it's uh, personal consumption expenditures, goods versus services from 2017 through most of 2021. And you can really see the disruptions across across the uh, the consumption. Yeah. From goods, it's broken out with, it's a line chart with goods and services. And from 2017 to 2020, you know, those two lines are very nice and steady and linear and then 2020 hits and you see them both drop and then you see a divergence with goods shooting up way above the linear projection so what brad is essentially saying in this article is a reversion to the mean and very likely dropping down and the experiences and services going up and i i agree with that both from a personal perspective from a financial analyst perspective you know from a personal perspective i can in the during the pandemic and over the past year you know i can sit at home and buy things off of amazon but what have i missed i've not been on a vacation in, in a while you know i've not gone and had experiences i've not gone out 
to eat with friends as much, you know. So that's kind of what he's he's getting at, and and I yeah I couldn't couldn't agree more. Yeah, and again, I think that as these supply chains normalize, uh, you could have over ordering by retailers. Mm-hmm. And what happens when you have excess goods that aren't selling? What happens? Prices come down. Prices come down, right? And I'm just saying that it's tough to see this right now. I think this is a real potential threat later in the year, especially during the holiday shopping season. Because mm-hmm. we've now gone through two holiday shopping seasons where inventories are tight, the deals really weren't there. And think about this time around. Do you think retailers are gonna take chances of their shelves being empty? And I think you could have a lot of ordering and you could have the deals finally come back this upcoming holiday season. Just something that's a real, real threat. It'll be interesting to see how how the market rewards the winners and who gets this right. Because yes. I imagine they will. Yes. And and not everyone is gonna fall into this category, right? It's gonna be on a spectrum. You know, some retailers are gonna get it massively wrong. Some are gonna get it right. Yeah. Um, and and I think the, the the bigger risk also for a lot of these suppliers is you've had to be very strategic as to which of your customers you've said yes to and which of your customers you said no to. And I'm gonna give you an example. Let's just take uh, Procter & Gamble as an example. If they can only make so much Tide detergent, they have to decide, are we gonna sell that to XYZ customer, Costco? Are we gonna sell it to Amazon? Are we gonna sell it to Target? Are we gonna sell it to Walmart? Because anything they were putting on the shelves, they were selling. And so they were having to figure out, okay, who are we going to say yes to? Who are we going to say no to? And I think that's going to start to show up in these conference calls over the next couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. When companies are mentioning, are they having the supply chain disruptions? And maybe they're not as much because they're more of an important customer to that supplier. Right. That could be another thing. Yep. Yeah, definitely. So um, listeners, last thing on this note from Brad. We do have this chart on our show notes, and uh, we have all of our show notes linked uh, to our social media, whether it be Facebook, LinkedIn, um, Twitter, all, uh, um, help me, Instagram. Do I have them all, Jenna? My gosh, all these social media sites. Thank God we have Jenna. So, um, yes, you can see the chart that, that Nick was referencing. My last note, and I specifically picked this with Mark not here, because this would just get him all worked up if I shared this when he was here. Jenna knows that it would cause fireworks in our podcast recording area. This is JP Morgan's market call from last week, and this is from January 10th. So uh, the chief global strategist at JP Morgan had these comments in his market call, and I'm going to read them, and I would love your response. Okay. Um, I might be poking... The bear here, too. This will be fun. Quote, we believe there is further upside for stocks and the dip driven by the Omicron scare should be bought into, says the chief global market strategist at J.P. Morgan. Noted for the recent buy the dip calls, the team wrote in a note, quote, the pullback in risk assets in reaction to the Fed minutes is arguably overdone. Policy tightening is likely to be gradual and a pace that risk assets should be able to handle. It is incurring an environment of a strong cyclical recovery, the analyst says. There are signs of supply constraints potentially passing their worst point and of power 
prices surge easing. Inventories are very low and the labor market is staying strong. And then he had a section end of the pandemic. While Omicron wave presents some downside risks to the first quarter growth of this year, they anticipate that cases will roll over sharply in the coming weeks, providing a boost to the second quarter. As the wave fades, it'll likely mark the end of the pandemic as Omicron's lower severity and high transmission uh, crowds out more severe variants and leads to broad natural immunity. Fundamentally, the the growth backdrop is likely to stay supportive. China activity deceleration is by now largely behind us, and economic surprises in the key regions are back into positive territory. That is a hot take. That's a hot take. There's a lot in there. (laughs) There's a lot in there. There's a lot to unpack. So just pick one thing or what just stands out at you when 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 you hear this opinion you know i'll i'll start by saying i agree and disagree with with different parts okay. in here um and i'll also start by saying i i like this guy i've read some of his stuff and and he's uh he's a very sharp guy um he's he's been very influential in writing about how impactful quantitatives are in the market mm-hmm. uh, i've learned a lot from reading about him so I'll start there. Okay. Uh, you know, on the dip, buying on the dip. I like that. I like what he said there. Um, the policy stuff on the Fed, I'm not so sure about. We'll see. Uh, one thing that I really don't agree with, and that the part where I was saying that's a hot take, is basically calling an end of the pandemic. That, I mean, I don't know, you know. How many variants have we seen? Will we see more? How this will develop? I don't know. That seems like a pretty hot take to me. Yeah, from- I mean, I think the thing that's I think that's what's encouraging from a data standpoint is even though cases were drastically higher than previous waves, hospitalizations were nothing in proportion to what they were in, in previous waves. Right. And so I think the feeling is is that. Um, as natural immunity spreads through these various populations, the actual um, transfer will probably go down is, I think, what he's trying to relate here. I'm yeah. not trying to put words in his mouth. That's how I interpret this. Yeah, and I interpret it the same way. I'm just saying it, it's it's tough to come out with such confidence and say that because you just, just don't know what other variants could come up. You don't know what other variants could come up, and there's so much. I mean, we're all sitting in the U.S. and it's very, very, very different outside. That's a very good point. You know what I mean? It's a very good point. um, And the other thing that I'm not 100% sure on is the the China comment. Yeah, that they're done decelerating? I don't know about that. (laughs) (laughs) Like, there's a lot going on over there. And let's say... I saw some raw data about their, their cement usage is like dropped big time. Well, that's because of all the issues with their with their real, real estate. estate. Exactly. I mean, they've got which is a very, third of their economy. A third of their I mean, they have some massive issues over there and their GDP just came out. I think it was Sunday, this past Sunday and it was down a little bit. That was the deceleration. I don't I don't see that. So that that's another area that that's I, definitely that I disagree take. with. But the other stuff I would say generally, yeah, I can I can get on board with it. What do you think? Um, okay, my two cents is I definitely think the, the, the buy the dip is definitely a, a, an interesting call and that I would generally agree with. Okay. Um, pull back in risk assets in regards to uh, the Fed minutes. 
being overdone, I would agree with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, supply chain uh, constraints potentially passing their worst point. It might get worse before it gets better. I'm still thinking early spring on that is yeah. where I think the actual peak pain is. Um, end of the pandemic, definitely a hot take. Um, but I do think that people aren't giving enough credit to what natural immunity with the latest Omicron will do for future waves. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to be really good. Yeah. Turn more into flu, common cold. It, it really could start to help that transition more than people think. That's uh, and I'm not, I'm not a doctor. I'm not either. And, you know, I talk to healthcare workers um, pretty regularly, actually. Uh, and I don't think it's going to happen as soon as it is inferred in the statement. I'll say it like that. Yeah. And the other thing that's really interesting is lately people that I know that are ill are testing negative for just COVID in general, but you're seeing more of the normal stuff we had before COVID. Yes. You know, you're seeing more people. I have a bad cold. I have yeah. the flu. You know, these things are not gone from society. No. Right. Especially as we go out and yeah, we, start to normalize. Yeah. our And then it's going to happen. People are going to get sick. Perhaps. People are going to need to take time off work. Yep. But, you know, once you rebuild up your immune system and get back out there, it's going to help. Absolutely. All right. I'll send it back to you, Nick. All righty. I have a tweet regarding the uh, the Bank of America or BOFA, uh, BOFA Global Fund Manager Survey. And for people who are not aware of what that is, it's a monthly report that canvasses around 200 plus institutional mutual fund and hedge fund managers around the world. Um, I like following this. It's, it's nice. They, they reach out, they do this survey to top PMs. It's a, it's a ton of assets under management that they're interviewing and they do it on a monthly basis. And so this tweet, uh, and I apologize, I'm probably going to mess up this last name. This is a tweet from Holger Zlapitz. I gotta I gotta spell it for listeners. Yeah, go for it. Z S C H A E P I T Z. He is German and I don't know how to pronounce that, so I am sorry. Yeah, mad respect. That's 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 a cool last name. It is a very cool last name. Uh, he's a he's an investigative journalist, financial journalist, um, and his tweet says this. Uh, In relation to this BOFA Global Fund Manager Survey, investors are very long equities, particularly in the EU, as well as cyclical banks, commodities, and industrials, while they shun bonds, defensives, i.e. utilities and staples, and emerging markets. Tech, technology overweight, slumps to the lowest since 2008, December of 2008. That's not Sorry, that's not that's not bearish. <laughs> so. I, I, I I love it when you're when you're underweight like a like a um like the top sector of the market like yeah, that. Yeah, what is one of the most influential parts of our society? I thought this was a great. There's a little chart too, just a simple little bar chart that shows the uh, the absolute weight of of uh, different different parts of of the market, different sectors. Um, and one of the things that I thought was so interesting is is the overweight to these cyclical areas. And we know that we've seen that in the market the past few months, um, you know, banks very overweight, you know, technology is on this chart sitting right at zero. So, so I mean, when you see banks and I, I, I think I know the answer, but the listeners may not. Why do you think people have been so bullish on the banks lately? It's a great question. And I have some tweets that are, are you know, actually 
two more that are going to kind of expand on this. So this all is right. all almost themed, right? Um, but it has to do with, with the Fed. Okay. And, uh, and then and the, other, the other thing is, why do you think Eurozone equities? I have my feeling. But what do you, you want me to share that first? Yeah, why don't, why don't you go with that? The, 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 thing I, the reason I think Eurozone equities is so popular is that over in Europe, their interest rates are inherently so much lower than ours that in some countries, they're still negative. Yep. That where else are you going to park the money, right? And I think over in, in Europe, you have a disproportional amount of equity exposure because the bond yields are so bad. You think ours are bad. Ours look yeah. like a picnic compared to theirs. Yeah, and ours are bad. And ours are bad. <laughs> I think that's why you have the overweight in Eurozone equities is when I see that. That's what yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah, I agree. You know, I think in general, uh, emerging market equities, international equities have been weaker than the U.S. market for, for some time now. Yep. So, you know, it, it doesn't surprise me to see, to see uh, you know, people buying in on the dip. And, and same thing with the banks, right? Both of those stick out to me as, you know, some underperformers over the past couple of years, a good buying opportunity, things are going on with the economy. So it makes sense, yeah. right? Um, so it's a good chart. Listeners, uh, check it out. You'll, you'll enjoy it. That leads me into my next tweet, which is a tweet, and it's an update on bank earnings. Look at that. I'm playing right into your hand. That's I did right. not know you were going to talk about this. <laughs> so this is a, a, an update, a tweet from Jim Perry. He is a senior strategist at Market Insights. And for listeners, uh, the the banks just started reporting this. Uh, uh, this week. J.P. Morgan kicked it off last Friday, um, and so there's there's been a, a few that have made it through. And uh, so here's here's a a quick tweet for you. Okay. Jim says a trio of big bank earnings points to variations on some themes. Semicolon. Consumers are still spending. Loan losses seem manageable, and technology underpins it all. And the big banks have to keep spending on tech to keep a pace with the digital age. And so this is a, a, a good tweet to, to summarize what's going on because multiple banks have come out and reported. And the earnings were so-so, some of them better than others. Um, but in a nutshell, bank expense growth has been relatively high for what we expected for, for fourth quarter earnings. Um, and a lot of it comes down to labor costs, which you cited earlier, mm -hmm. and technology spending. Um, you know, a, a good example for people who have been following the bank stocks over the past five, six trading sessions, you know, Wells Fargo has actually performed better. And that's because they have a, a cost savings program since the new CEO started in 2019. So you're seeing that kind of play out. And these bank stocks are getting have been getting hit. Yeah. pretty seriously. A lot of listeners have probably seen the headlines on Goldman Sachs down. Um, you know, they touched double digits yesterday. Um, and it's it's because of of higher expenses on labor and technology, on technology spending where the market is currently equal weight. Yeah, I, I saw this right. in the JP Morgan note. And again, as we talk about specific names, this is not a recommendation for or against JP Morgan. Right. But in their earnings call on Friday, they specifically also said that stock buybacks are one of their lowest priorities for mm -hmm. the year. That's right. not what you want to hear as a shareholder when you're like, okay, your expenses are up and you're not going to be buying back much stock. I think that's why you had the negative sentiment. Right. And this is why I think this earnings season is going to be very key the next couple of weeks is 
I think they're going to have a big difference of winners and losers, these, yeah. these post reports. Yeah, and I think this will start, you know, we've heard a lot of talking heads on, on the street talk about this, that this year you'll start to see more divergence within subsectors. Yes. So this is a perfect example where your winners and losers will start to set themselves Wells Fargo apart. compared to JP or Morgan Stanley versus Goldman, that type of thing. Right. Right. And I'm not saying that, you know, this quarter is going to predict that. Um, but you're going to see, start to see difference of performance among a sector. Right. I exactly. would agree with that. Yeah. So. Um, say in technology, difference between, say, a meta and a Google. Right. Precisely. Yep. Precisely. Um, so that leads me into my next tweet. And again, this is all kind of related. And this okay. comes from Lisa Abramowicz. Uh, and she's a Bloomberg news anchor. Um and the tweet says, a March Fed rate hike is now almost fully priced into the markets, uh, followed by two additional moves in November. Now, this tweet is a little older. It's from January 13, and it's a chart. Admittedly, listeners, I don't love this chart, but I, I wanted to use this tweet as a way to bring up the Fed rate. Um, and right now, the market's pricing in four hikes this year. Um, and so what she says is, you know, a March Fed rate is now almost fully priced in. I think it's like, I looked yesterday, it was like 89% of the market expects a rate hike in, in March. Mm -hmm. um, and the market's pricing in three after that. Yeah. Right. Um, and so this kind of ties into to a lot of the talking points that people are pricing in the news and, you know, what's the Fed going to do and how's it going to impact bank stocks and how's it going to impact inflation and how quick are they going to hike and... You know, the the calls on the street are, you know, four is what everyone expects. But I heard someone from uh, Bank of America yesterday call for eight this year. So there's the yeah, Jamie Dimon of JP said six or seven is a possibility. Yeah. So, I mean, the expectations are are pretty wide. We don't know. And so we could only get two or three. We could get two or three. I mean, historically speaking, it seems like the Fed tends to move behind the curve what the yeah. what the market wants. I shouldn't, use, I shouldn't use the word curve just behind yeah behind behind yeah. market expectations yes. so i would say you know market says four it wouldn't shock me if we only saw three mm -hmm. but i mean we'll see um but i think the underlying data would have to be so strong yeah. for them to do more than four right especially or, during an election year right or inflation goes high, even higher yes then they then they're gonna have to really speed it up yep uh, but they also have other ways that they can go about it you know with with uh you know tapering off their balance sheet at a more aggressive uh facet you know yep. that's one way they could go about it so listeners should be aware of what's going on with that there's a lot of talk in the news it is very important it can have pretty pretty drastic effects and and cause some choppiness this year so i wanted to bring that one up and you know, it, it kind of ties in with, with a lot of what we've been talking about with bank earnings and, um, you know, the the fund manager surveys with the overweight to banks. And that that's why, right? Exactly, you know, because more interest rates go up, the more the banks tend to make in earnings. Yeah, I mean, if the, if the Fed were to hike eight times this year, the banks will make more money. That's right. They will. Without a doubt. <laughs> they get to make the difference. Exactly. The other thing that comes to mind as you're talking about these, these rate rises at the beginning, you were talking about performance of the various stock indices, mm -hmm. you know, and you talked about, you know, year to date, like the NASDAQ comp and the Russell 2000 small right. cap doing so poorly for the first, you know, two and a half, three weeks of the year here. You know, I, I think it is the market shooting first and asking questions later. Yeah. And 
the, the, the risky thing I think the market's doing from my perspective is it's trying to provide analogies in prior rising rate environments and then trying to apply that same standard to where these companies are at today. Yeah. And go back to my Amazon example from about 20 minutes ago. Trying to relate where these technology, these large big cap tech names were in the dot-com bubble of 00 to 02, which was a rising interest rate uh, time at that point mm -hmm. before 9-11. If you try to relate that to now, that is not an apples to apples comparison. But Nick, why do you think so many people are doing it? Because to me, it doesn't make any sense. I wish I had the answer. I really do. It makes I, no sense. I I don't know why. I'll give I'll give listeners even a little bit more on that. When you think about when you think about what's happened in the past couple months and you look at, you know, this fund manager survey that we talked about, people buying more into banks, and then like what you were saying, I like how you said that, you know shoot first, ask questions later. They are. Okay, so they, they shot first, they bought the banks or selling off tech, and yes. then we see the bank earnings come out, and some of them were decent, but the trends that we talked about earlier, high expense growth. Yep. You know, Goldman Sachs missed on their equity trading pretty heavily, so there's still a lot of variability in some of the trading numbers from the banks. Um, you know, they're spending more money. They're going out and borrowing more money because – we know that rates are going to come up. So they're going to borrow more money at lower interest rates, which for banks is not that big of a deal. But, um, and you see the stock performance and people are like, oh, wait. But the banks are supposed to be up. <laughs> right. Right. And so they, you know, they, those are pretty big boosts. You know, JP Morgan, I think they fell like five or 6% after their earnings. That's yeah. a big move for JP Morgan. So, yeah. um, you know, Goldman Sachs down double digits at, at one point in the trading day yesterday. So, uh, yeah, it is a bit shoot first, ask questions later. And I think the reaction to big bank earnings is a perfect example of that. Yeah. Right? And I think people are going to wake up once this quarter, uh, once this earnings season quarter is done mm -hmm. and really look back at where, where was the consistency? Where was the quality of earnings? Yeah. And I think it goes back to more and more being a stock pickers market mm -hmm. than just, well, rising interest rate says I should buy bank stocks. So I'm just going to buy a basket and do good. Right. Is, right. So far, that narrative is not working. Yeah. And another thing that to to add on to your point of, you know, the market in 2000 and the market today, the economy today are drastically different. Drastically different. You, know, you think about what were the banks putting all their money in back in 2000 relative to where is the high spend area now? And you listen to, to talking heads and, and very important members in the banking community, i.e. Jamie Dimon and, and what he's most concerned with, and he's most concerned with fintech, and he's most concerned with technology, and making sure that J.P. Morgan spends enough on their technology but to remain ahead competitive. Of the, they stay ahead of the competition. Right. Goes back to that capitalism. Exactly. You know, in a, in, you know innovation will always be the biggest problem for companies because mm -hmm. someone can out-innovate you. Yeah. Right? And so for these big banks... That's, I mean, there's They don't want a Silicon Valley startup knocking them off. Exactly. But the best way to do that is to go buy these Silicon Valley names before they, they blow up or to invest in similar yeah. types of technology and to try to be ahead of the curve. So That's why I'm so proponent. Let the, let, let the capitalistic society work its way out. It will. Right. Yeah. So Profit I, I, will seek. Yes, absolutely. 
Got anything else? No, that's everything for me. That's I have a very me. quick financial planning topic of the week, okay? And I am going to read this to you, and I want your feedback, okay? All right. So this was an article on CNBC.com. The title of it is, Here Are Four Ways to Get Your Retirement Savings Plan Back on Track. And it was by Lori Conish on January 14th. I'm going to read you the four items, and you just... I want you to tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. Yay, nay, don't like it, et cetera, okay? Okay. So again, if you're not on track for your retirement savings, how do you get back on track? First one, pretty direct, kick up your savings rate. It can be tough to know how much uh, is enough when it comes to your retirement savings rate. Uh, they um, um, quote a Tiro Price contribution strategist who advocates getting up to a 15% deferral rate and it goes, that comes to a surprise as many workers, considering the automatic enrollment rates are as low as 3% or less. Um, what's your reaction to that? I'm a big fan of saving in general. I'm a pretty frugal guy. I've worked in finance my whole career, so I agree with that. You kick agree up your with savings that. rate. You, know, so, you don't necessarily have to save it in the bank. You know, Kick up your savings rate. You can save some in the bank, but I think that's also a big mistake that people make is having too high of of cash, cash level at the bank now now earning a return yeah diversify into multiple investment accounts i love that and so the only thing that uh, i like when i saw this that i don't think is talked enough about is what i call my plus one percent strategy and i talked about this on the independent advisors podcast in the past nick where every year at a minimum you raise your savings by at least one percent and mm -hmm. then next thing you know 10 years later no matter where you were whether you start at fresh or you were already at five You'll be at a double-digit savings rate, and you're going to be in a good path. Yeah. So that plus 1% strategy, big, big fan, underutilized. Yeah. Kind of like some of my favorite condiments, okay? I'm going to throw this out there. Just to throw a zinger for you, Nick. There's a lot of condiments out there. That I love I where this is going. We're hugely underutilized, okay? Hit me. <laughs> spicy mustard, underutilized. I have spicy mustard horseradish in my fridge right now it's like one package you know we're gonna get like people sending us spicy mustard now i'm cool with that <laughs> i'm okay with that jenna never knows where i'm gonna go <laughs> all right number two <laughs> invest in an ira one of the key reasons many workers don't save more is because they don't have access to a retirement savings plan at work it says just 64% of private industry workers, Nick, have access to a 401k according to T. Rowe Price. So it goes on to say that Roth IRAs are a really good way for younger people to save. Um, any comment about that? Yes, if you are a young person and you're listening to this, <clears throat> please go do this. <clears throat> Open up important. a Roth IRA. There's a lot of custodians that don't charge you any, no IRA maintenance fees like they used to. Mm. The underlying cost, you can buy a stock, you could buy an index fund. Just do something, save something into it. Yeah, and and I mean, the importance of compounding interest cannot, cannot be stressed enough. And it comes out all tax-free if it's a Roth. Yep. I mean, imagine 40 years of compounding and coming out completely tax-free and if you only put in five percent of your paycheck unbelievable even still i mean it's it's game-changing decision making small steps now decades later absolutely that's the difference so, yes. between enjoying 
um, the champagne of beers and actually enjoying champagne. That's right. Although I do love the champagne of beers. I'm not knocking it. (laughs) Not knocking it. The old high life. Number three, consider working a year or two longer. It says if you're near retirement age, another strategy to consider is working longer. Even a year or two of extra income can help bolster your retirement, uh, financial retirement security. The reason? More time to save and let your assets grow, less time supporting withdrawals for retirement living expenses. Um, yeah, I agree with that. I think there are some people who might struggle with that idea of maybe they're just like done or their knee has had it or whatever. I think that just depends on the person. But sure, I mean, if you can... <laughs> What comes to mind for me is I think a lot of people not getting creative with their employers about uh, partial retirement. Mm -hmm. You know, what I'm seeing a lot of uh, of my clients do, I would say, in their mid to late 60s is getting creative in going to their employers and saying, I'll work three weeks out of the month. And those three weeks I work would be three days. Mm -hmm. And I literally have certain clients that have bought places in Florida. And because of the evolution of these low-cost carriers like Allegiant, they don't have to bring bags on the plane because they have all their stuff down in Florida, another house, and they're commuting on the weekends mm-hmm. at a cost for a specific person less than $100. Yeah. And so all of a sudden now, they have this quasi-retirement lifestyle. They're bringing in still about 60% of their former income, enough to live off of, not going to their retirement savings yet. They're not buying themselves time. They got a little bit of that freedom of traveling and and Mm -hmm. going to the warmth on the weekends. They're not burning themselves out. Genius. Yeah. I I mean, I love that. That is a great strategy. I know not everyone can pull that off, but uh, I would say to people who are listening and this is the first time they've thought about doing that. Hey, if you can have that conversation, why not? The worst they can say is no. Or start getting ahead (laughs) of it. Hey, in a couple of years, start thinking about this is where, um, where I think my career path is going. People, uh, companies don't want to lose people right now. Right. 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 The other thing I'm seeing more and more of an evolution on is people doing longer Airbnbs instead of buying a second home. Yeah. So the other trend I'm seeing is, you know, a decade ago, people would reach out and say, when I retire, I want to move to this lake or I want to move to this city in Florida or wherever it might be, Arizona, Texas. Now I'm seeing, hey, I'm going to spend a month in Florida around this family member, a month in Arizona during the, the snowbird months. Mm-hmm. And guess what? When that hurricane comes through Florida, you don't have to worry about your hurricane shutters or all that junk. Yep. Yeah, I have friends that, that have done this too with, with remote work. And I'm seeing and They've it. lived in five different states in a year and a half. So. Yeah, I've seen yeah. this. Yeah. All right, last one. Delay claiming Social Security benefits. Working longer <laughs> can make it possible for you to delay Social Security and can significantly boost your eventual monthly retirement benefit checks. Uh, Workers are eligible to claim their first benefits at age 62, Nick, uh, but will have reduced benefits for life. By waiting until your full retirement age, generally 66 or 67 years of age, they receive 100% of the benefits they earned. And for every year they wait till age 70 thereafter, their benefits go up even more. The difference between claiming at 62 and 70 could be as much as 77%. So this is one of those things where I tell clients, if you can afford to wait with your cash flow, I'd rather them take some money out of their portfolio, delay SSI yeah. if they can. But this is definitely a hot topic uh, for what I call the planning portion. And I always defer internally 
to our financial planning division of our firm when these types of questions come up. Mm-hmm. Um, any comment you want to make? Yeah, I'm pretty sure this is not my area of expertise. Like you mentioned, I would defer to uh, to Mr. Kramer on this one. But uh, yeah, I would generally think delaying would probably be a good idea. If you can you afford know, it, if right? You, if you can afford to do so, yeah. Yeah, I see the risk of people who retire before that full retirement age and still want to work, I think you can only make something like 18000 a year before it starts to hurt your benefit. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you're, you're, you're playing a dangerous game at that point because yeah. if you go over 18000 your SSI benefit is reduced by 50% for every dollar you make after that. Yep. Yeah. All right. So that's the, the piece I have this week uh, just to one. kind of stoke some talking topics about four ways to get back on track. So I thought it was good. Yeah, I like it. So before we sign off, any other last thoughts or comments for our viewers and listeners? No, I think uh, I think we covered it. It was a good one. Thanks for uh, having me again. We had some good ones. I got on my soapbox a couple of times. Yeah, yeah. We we got you. I have a plethora of things for Jenna to pick from. But uh, all right, listeners, we're going to be back next week with episode 134. I'll be back with Mark. Nick, thank you for uh, all the planning and and time you put in preparation for today's podcast. I know it's a lot of work, so appreciate also you taking time out of your uh, research and trading day to be a part of this for our viewers and listeners. Absolutely. And uh, listeners and viewers, thank you for tuning in to episode 133 of the Independent Advisors podcast. Uh, Nick and I sincerely hope all of you have a wonderful rest of your week, and I'll be returning next week with Mr. McEvely. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.